Okay, church family, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Leviticus chapter 15 this morning. If you are new here, or you're visiting, um, we are a church that preaches line by line, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the text, um, and we don't skip things, and this morning is a testament to that, um, and yet uh, we think there is, um, that the word of God is true, it's profitable. Uh, that in it, it produces a uh, change of heart. And so this morning, we'll be in Leviticus 15. Um, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. We're just going to read the summary of the end of the purification law at the end of verse 15, verses 31 through 33. So Leviticus chapter 15, we'll read verses 31 through 33. Uh, Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die... In their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. This is the law for one who has a discharge, and for him who emits semen and is unclean thereby, and for her who is indisposed because of her customary impurity, and for one who has a discharge, either man or woman, and for him who lies with her who is unclean. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord is endured. That's right. Let's, um, let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for the grace that has brought us here this morning. Thank you for the work of your spirit that has given us the desire to worship you. Thank you, Father, for your people that we get to be engrafted into this community of saints that long to grow into the image of Christ. That we might bring you greater sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. Father, our desire is that through the, the singing, the, the praying, the reading, the preaching of your word that we might be transformed. We want to be like Jesus. That your promise of sanctification would continue its course as the Holy Spirit, Father, continues his work in us. Grant us grace now to hear and apply your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay, Leviticus 15. I was, I was thinking about what we've been studying, which is really the, the purification laws, these ritual states that we've been discussing. Remember, there are three ritual states, clean, unclean, and holy. I thought back to a similar practice of ritual states I participated in when I was a, I was a child. It wasn't based on a disease or moral state. It was based more on intuition. We called that ritual impure state cooties. No one could ever tell you exactly what it was, but all my friends and I thought all the girls had it. Oddly enough, the girls thought we had the cooties, and the mystery remains today as to who was right. Either way, whether it was us or whether it was them or both, cooties was highly contagious. Simply touch someone with cooties and you would get it. Touch someone's stuff who had cooties and you would get it. It was a debilitating uncleanness. Cooties could take on epidemic proportions in a single day. It could run amok in a school if you were not careful, and it was part of the reason that recess was so entirely complicated. Well, in Leviticus 15, we do find the last chapter of the purity laws expounded. In this chapter, we see uncleanness, a lot like cooties, is highly contagious. It spreads. 
That's really the big idea that we find in chapter 15. Like cooties, uncleanness is highly contagious. Uncleanness is highly contagious. Here's how we're going to do today. We're going to briefly take apart the text. We're going to consider in greater detail how ritual purity could very easily become an epidemic. We're going to see the Lord's remedy for that epidemic and consider our own call in light of that remedy. So that's the direction. Uh, An epidemic, the remedy for the epidemic, and our call in light of that remedy. Let's start, however, with the text itself. Let's look at the passage itself first and foremost. It's the final chapter of purity laws found in chapters 11 through 15 of Leviticus, meaning we're ending here a literary unit. This is a stopping point. And let's go over those literary units we've seen so far. The first seven chapters of Leviticus were all about the sacrificial system, how Israel was to worship God through sacrifice, pursuing atonement, cleansing, and purifying. Then in Leviticus chapters 8 through 10, we had that historical narrative that recorded the institution and consecration of the priesthood. And then we came to chapters 11 through 15. We came to the exposition of ritual impurity, how to identify ritual impurity, how to address it. Uh, And in chiasm 15 itself records a chiasm. Does anybody remember when we talked about these in 1 Thessalonians? Probably not. Um, But I'll remind you, uh, you've heard that term many times. The purpose of a chiasm is uh, usually to emphasize some central idea, but it also can be used as a memorization tool. They often take on the framing of A, B, C, B, A, or A, B, C, C, B, A, and right in the middle usually is the main point. And this is a poetic structure, it's a literary structure to help identify that main point or to help people memorize what they need to memorize from that particular text. Well, what we find in chapter 15 is an A, B, B, A structure. Think ABBA, if you like Swedish rock bands in the 70s and 80s. They're not a rock band, sorry. Um, Pop band. Uh, Serious, uh, so here we have uh, the structure, A, B, B, A. It starts with A, which is serious male discharges, described in verses 2 through 15. B, the explanation of a normal male discharge, explained in verses 16 through 18. Then B2, the second B, a normal female discharge, followed by A, a serious female discharge. That's the the chiastic structure we find in verses 2 through 30. The point is that these discharges cause an uncleanness that had to be dealt with just like any other uncleanness we found in chapters 11 through 15. In fact, verses 32 through 33, what we read, summarize the chapter as a whole. And I do want to just hang out a second on verse 31 of chapter 15. Look at it with me. It says, Thus you shall separate the children of Israel... From their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. So, so this really, uh, that, that, that verse really serves as a summary section for the entirety of the ritual law section. Right? It, it's a reminder that the Holy Lord of the universe is dwelling in their midst. Uncleanness defiles That palace tent of the Lord, His very presence, uncleanness spreads like chicken pox. It is an unholy dust, if you remember, that that settles on the people. And if the Lord's tabernacle becomes unclean, then bad things will happen. The Lord's wrath could break out in form of sickness or defeat in battle or death. And worse yet, the Lord's presence may actually depart from the tabernacle. We've considered all those things at, at length at this point. But the point of all of these laws were to remind Israel 
and us that they are to keep separate that which is unclean in order to protect that which is holy, the Lord's holy dwelling place. Okay, so, so that's really, in a, um, in a summary, the best I can give you of what this chapter is explained to us and what it means. Um, but the final consideration, it, it is, this is what it is. It's a final consideration of a rather large category of uncleanness caused by the discharge from male or female reproductive organs. But, but we see an emphasis like we have in all of these chapters on a specific aspect of that uncleanness. And that's what I want to look at now in more detail. This is the reality. This is the specific aspect that this text just screams at us. And it is that uncleanness can become an epidemic. Uh, This uncleanness can become an epidemic. Uncleanness is a contagion. Like an infestation, it can spread throughout the camp. And in verses 4 through 12, every verse emphasizes the fact that this uncleanness is easily spread. Every bed a person with uncleanness lays on is unclean. Everyone who touches a bed that has become unclean because an an unclean person has laid on it, they themselves become unclean. Everything on which an unclean person sits is unclean. And everyone who touches the place where the person has sat is unclean. Verse 6, whoever touches the body of the one with a discharge is unclean. Verse 7, if the one with the discharge spits on someone, they have become unclean. So for all of you close talkers, that's an important lesson, right? Keep your distance. Say it. Don't spray it. The saddle or anything else that winds up underneath the person for any reason is thereby unclean. And finally, even the cookware of the unclean person has become unclean, or anyone who touches the cookware or whatever is contained within the cookware is unclean. I mean, this thing spreads worse than cooties. Every discharge would would not only cause a person to be unclean, but would in itself have the potential to spread like wildfire. Uh, This is what made separation so important. Contact with the unclean rendered someone else unclean. Imagine, this is, this is probably nearly 2 million people living in close proximity. And, and imagine the potential of 2 million people to create uncleanness. Just, just think about what we've gone over in the purification laws. Hear me. Every time a man has a discharge of semen, he was unclean. Everything he touched was unclean. Everyone that touched him or the things he touched was unclean. Every time a child was born, there was uncleanness and the potential for more uncleanness. Every time a woman menstruated, she was unclean. Everywhere she sat, everything she touched, and everyone who touched her, the things that she touched was unclean. Every time someone removed a dead animal or someone died and a corpse had to be dealt with. Every time these things took place in the camps of Israel, uncleanness was the result. Now now add to the fact that these things that caused uncleanness were simply spread by a mere touch. The potential for uncleanness is mind-boggling. And also consider this. You have to understand that this uncleanness was unidirectional. What do I mean by that? The uncleanness was unidirectional. Well, I want you to consider with me this text that we're about to look at in the book of Haggai. I'll give you some time to write down the unidirectional. You know I don't like to use those simple one-syllable, two-syllable words. Um, Unidirectional. Uh, Things that are unclean cause uncleanness where contact is made, but it doesn't work the other way. Here's why this is important. Look at at Haggai chapter 2. We'll get to why it's important a little bit later, but I want to see it in the text. Haggai chapter 2. I'd have you turn there, but it'd be a struggle for many of us probably to find it. It's between the two Z's, Zechariah and Zephaniah. Um, Haggai chapter 2 says this. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? So, here's the question. If the priest is carrying holy meat, it's holy, and it touches something that is not holy, does the thing it touch become holy? That's the question that's asked. Then the priest answered and said, no. It doesn't work like that. And and Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. See, it was so easy for the uncleanness to spread, but it didn't work the other way. Cleanness was not as easily caught. This is why the impurity laws were so important to Israel. Remember, Israel's covenant Lord would not allow His holy dwelling place to be defiled. Rampant uncleanness was not an option, and yet it was always present, always having to be dealt with. There was the threat of it becoming epidemic. Therefore, the ritually impure had to separate and purify themselves to keep the holy dust from settling over the holy sanctuary. And once again, uh, we see the lessons of moral impurity embedded in this chapter. We must. This is ultimately, this is not ultimately about ritual impurity, but moral impurity. See that. As we've studied from chapters 11 through 15, we've seen this over and over again. It's not just about ritual impurity, it's about moral impurity. The two are not the same, nor can they be completely disconnected. Ritual impurity was a constant threat, but the greatest threat was moral impurity. The greater threat was not a symbolic uncleanness represented in the ritual states. The greater threat was their filthy words and thoughts and deeds. You don't have to read much of the Pentateuch to to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Israel's greatest threat was not male or female discharges. It was their repeated refusal to trust and obey their Lord. It was a morally depraved and unclean heart. And at the end of the day, ritual impurity was only a danger because it represented and was often caused by moral depravity. Moral impurity is the actual state, by the way, of being at enmity with God. Don't miss that. Moral impurity, it's it's not just breaking the rules. It's unrighteousness. It's not being in right relationship with God. It's the opposite of rightness, cleanness, and moral purity. Not only was moral uncleanness a greater threat than ritual uncleanness, it was also just as contagious. We considered that briefly last week. You remember we talked about how sin is progressive. Just as ritual impurity spreads to other things and people, well, so also with moral impurity. The reality is that sin, like a parasite, both destroys and gives life at the same time. It destroys the host while it breeds more of itself. This is the ironic thing about sin. I just thought about the, the, the second Wreck-It Ralph movie, if you're, uh, if you're a fan of Disney, right? If you're, or if you have kids. Right when, when Ralph incorporates this virus into this particular system, he creates more of himself, and yet it destroys everything around him. That's exactly what our sin does. 
It breeds on itself and yet it destroys everything it touches simultaneously. And so we need to understand that. That's the ironic thing about sin. It tends to both kill and reproduce. But sin is not only growing the life of the individual sinner. It inevitably provokes sin in others. It spreads among a community. Sin is a plague. It's a polluted river that spills over its banks into other waterways. The sin of Adam echoes down through time and space, even into our own lives. And we also see that just as there was a great need in Israel to be cleansed of their ritual impurity, there was an even greater need for them to be cleansed of their moral impurity. Their greatest need was for moral purity, to be cleansed from the guilt and power of sin, to have their defiled hearts purified. The greatest need was for a vaccine that would not only protect them from the threat of ritual impurity, but would also completely remove their inclination to sin against their covenant Lord. The antidote in the Old Testament was the law. That was the antidote for them in the Old Testament. And it was gracious, but hear me, it was never meant to be permanent. Israel, like the rest of humanity, was terminally sick with a cancer that was spreading and the law was not ultimately the cure. Instead, what the law was, it was a diagnostic tool. The law was not used to purify the impure, but to diagnose the problem. And every time the test was applied, it came back positive. Just as it is in our lives. It's like taking our temperature. The law is applied and we come red, back red hot with perverted passions and come back ice cold towards our God. The CAT scan is conclusive. The human soul languishes from rebellion. People are inconsolably sick. And so hear me, their greatest need was for moral purity, a righteous and right standing with God. And indeed, in the fullness of time, God sent forth a permanent remedy. And we all know this, right? Jesus is the permanent remedy. Jesus Christ is. (coughs) Sorry, that could not have been pleasant to hear. I'm sorry. We have seen that, that not just in chapter 15, but throughout Leviticus, time and again, the law always pointed toward Christ. But something struck me very, very interesting, as very interesting as I was working through this text. Okay, Here's what it was. Yes, Jesus is the permanent remedy. But think about this. Christ came into the world, the Son of God, the Word of God. And as John 1.14 says, He tabernacled among us. Jesus himself, hear this, Jesus was a walking palace tent. Jesus was the very holy of holies among an unclean people. Now, this struck me as a little bit of a problem. And here's why. Because what have we seen in Leviticus? What we've seen repeatedly as we looked in Leviticus is that God cannot dwell among sinfully, ritually unclean people. Can he? You see the problem? Jesus is the Son of God. That means Jesus is very God of very God. Jesus is God specifically tabernacling among unclean people. But but that means that Jesus was rubbing shoulders with unclean people. It means the tabernacle 
picked up in the middle of the camp and hung outside the camp with the uncleanest of the unclean. I mean, just think about the crowds that followed Jesus. The unclean were constantly touching him. People were not, as they were taught, separating themselves as their impurities from God's holy palace tent and the Son of God incarnate. Instead, they were moving as close as God as they possibly could. They were making contact. Now, now mind you, none of them, none of them thought in these terms. No one realized that they were reaching out and grasping hold of the tabernacle itself. The Israelites at this point were still trying to figure out who Jesus was. None of them ultimately suspected he was God incarnate. They were thinking he's a teacher, maybe a prophet. A a few were, were thinking possibly the Messiah, but not even necessarily in terms of divinity. But, but this doesn't help remove the problem. It actually only exasperates it. If all of these people are unclean and they're touching Jesus, and if he is just another Israelite, then, then why isn't Jesus following the purity laws? Put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite. Their Bible is the Hebrew Bible. That's all they have. Their primary books are the Pentateuch. And one of those primary books is the book of Leviticus. They grew up on it. They understood the minutia of Leviticus better than we probably ever will. And so these things we're considering in chapters 11 through 15, they knew and they're watching Jesus walk around among the unclean, touching people with ritually defiling skin diseases, being touched by a woman who has had a flow of blood for 12 years. If Jesus was not the Son of God, it doesn't relieve the problem, it only amplifies it. A Jew in the time of Jesus would have known Leviticus, would have realized that Jesus was under the law, that the purity laws applied to him. And so why wasn't Jesus unclean until evening? That's the question. Why didn't he have to bathe and wash his clothes? See, look, this is what we do. It's so easy to read our New Testament and and condemn the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, right? It's so easy to miss the reality that if you're a Pharisee and you're watching Jesus, you are really struggling with some of the things he's doing. I I personally don't think it would be completely different than our own context, the struggle we might see or have in seeing a person who knows and who we know and who claims to be a follower of Christ shaking hands with a drug dealer. Right? We, we know that guy's a drug dealer. Why in the world is he shaking his hand? Or we see someone we know claims to be a Christian walk up and, and hug a prostitute. And I thought that person loved Jesus. Shame on them. Wouldn't we be tempted to talk among ourselves and wonder about whether that person is really even a Christian? So you see the problem here. Well, what's the answer to the problem? How can Jesus obey the law which he doesn't appear to be doing in order to obey the whole law for his people, which we believe he did, yet get away with not following the purity laws. How? How can Jesus obey the law, which we believe he did for his whole people, yet get away with not following the purity laws? Well, I've I've got a couple preliminary remarks and then an answer. Here's the first preliminary remark. Remember, It wasn't disobedience to become unclean. You just need to remember that. Okay, That's a preliminary remark. This was not disobedience. 
It wasn't disobedient to touch an unclean person. It was disobedient to ignore the mandatory requirement to separate oneself and follow the ritual of purification if one became unclean. That's what was law-breaking. That was a transgression. But this didn't apply to Jesus, and we'll get to why in a second. Mainly because he never became unclean. (laughs) Jesus did not break the law by touching, touching ritually unclean people because Jesus was not unclean. He did not need to follow the purification law. Second, the Lord dwelled among unclean people in ancient Israel. We touched on that. We actually, we say this, but it's very clear, just because it was more obvious in the life of Jesus that he moved into the lives of unclean people, those who were deemed ritually impure, really it's not different than what God himself did in tabernacling among Israel. I mean, yes, God had redeemed them and brought them out of Egypt, but the whole point of the law is that he is still dwelling in the midst of an unclean people. Hence the need for daily sacrifices. Hence the need for the Day of Atonement. Hence the need for separation. And the constant attempts to keep his tabernacle clean or not defile it. The the difference isn't really as great as it first appears. See, uncleanness was always present in Israel. Uncleanness was always contaminating the Lord's holy place. There was a constant need for sacrifices. They never ended. And so Jesus, God of very God, tabernacling among us, moving into the lives of unclean people, is really just a micro picture of the Lord of hosts gathering up his people, Israel, and bringing them to Mount Sinai to tabernacle among them. At the end of the day, God can't become unclean. At the end of the day, God did not establish... The purification laws because he was a germaphobe. God didn't threaten to withdraw because he was afraid he was going to get cooties or become defiled. God can't be defiled. He was teaching Israel about his holiness, about his moral purity, and about our desperate need. And as we've seen repeatedly, the ritual states and the sacrificial system was the school in which Israel learned about God's holiness. And Israel learned about their desperate situation, their need for the seed of Abraham to bring about that new shalom that all of creation is longing for. It was an elaborate drama designed to instruct Israel in all all the nations. Listen, the Lord wasn't concerned about contracting a skin disease. He wasn't uncomfortable with the means of procreation. In fact, it was his idea which he blessed. His concern was for righteousness, always. His concern was for people to be in a right relationship with himself. His concern was for the restoration of shalom and the holiness of his people. So there is no real problem with the Son of God dwelling among ritually impure people. And so as God, Jesus did not become defiled when he touched the unclean. Which actually brings us to the primary answer. See, the reason Jesus could seemingly disregard the purification laws while still claiming to fulfill the law is because Jesus not only fulfilled the law, but he was the fulfillment of the law. That's the point, friends. Jesus not only fulfilled the law, but he himself was the fulfillment of that law. That is, he not only lived the perfect life of obedience, keeping the whole law for his people, but Jesus was the quintessence of those laws. He was the point and the purpose of those laws. Jesus embodied the laws. We've seen this week after week. 
This is, this is why it's so easy to read through these things and, and see the life of Jesus. We don't have to make this stuff up. You just read through it and you can't help to see Christ because He is the fulfillment of all that's recorded here. The purification laws ultimately were not about abstract, arbitrary legislation. They were a reflection of God's perfect, holy character and gracious provision for unclean people. Jesus, as the image of the invisible God, reflected God's holy character and gracious provision. Not simply by obeying the command, though he certainly did, but by accomplishing its intent. Think about this. What was the intent of the law? What was the purpose? To protect God's holy people, honor God's holiness, bring about the purification of God's people when they come unclean. That was the intent of the law. Jesus separated the unclean from the clean. He did that, does that, is doing that, will do that. Jesus made people clean in a way the purification laws never could. He's accomplished that. It's finished. The Holy Spirit is applying that. We will experience that in its ultimate fulfillment when He returns. Listen, you remember we talked about Haggai? How uncleanness is unidirectional? Jesus' cleanness is contagious too. You understand that? You remember the the question was, okay, if if the holy meat touches somebody, do they become holy? No. Well, think about the woman with the blood flow, right? Jesus did not become unclean when he was touched by that woman with the discharge. What happened? She became clean. Jesus didn't become unclean when he reached out and touched a person with a ritually defiling skin disease. That person became clean. He wasn't concerned about going into the house that was unclean because there was a corpse in it because he knew that his cleanness was more powerful than the uncleanness of death. So Jesus didn't turn the unclean away. He invited them to the tabernacle, to himself. He let them touch him and he lovingly touched the unclean. He made the unclean clean. That brings us to our calling. What's that have to do with us? I, I thought about this text this week. I, I'm going to say that this brings us to our calling of greater works. The reality is, as amazing as the ministry of Jesus was, as he made ritually unclean people clean, it does not compare to the ministry that he is about in the lives of his people. Jesus himself said that we would do even greater works than his. Have you ever struggled with that verse? John 14, 12. We're going to look at it in a second. Let's look at it now, actually. John 14, 12. He says, Most assuredly, Jesus speaking, Most assuredly, I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. So they will, they will do the same works as Jesus, but Jesus goes on. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Now, this is a verse that's obviously interpreted in many ways, and we're not really going to exegete this text. I, I will say, um, some would like to say that this verse is about miracles. Jesus did miracles, we'll do greater miracles. That's really hard to believe, considering Jesus raised the dead. It's hard to imagine doing much greater than that. Some say it's about quantity. We will do more works. But the reality, I mean, let's just wrestle with that for a second. Let's just come together and we, we'll wrestle with it. Greater works period, even if those two were correct, even if they were. I mean, consider 
the magnitude of his impact in Israel at that time. Jesus made many who were ritually unclean clean during his earthly ministry. Jesus healed. Jesus calmed storms. He mass-produced dinner, walked on water, raised the dead. I mean, greater works than Jesus? The reality is, yes, Jesus has said, you will do greater works than I. But, but what could be greater than making the ritually unclean clean? What work could be greater than raising the dead, even if you do a whole lot of it? Well, one work is greater than what Jesus accomplished during his earthly ministry. And that is making the morally unclean person morally clean. Making the unrighteous righteous. Raising the spiritually dead. This is the greater work that Jesus said we would do. Now, we know that Jesus is about that, but, but that's not what he says in John 14, 12. He says, this is the work you will do. Why? Because yes, many had experienced ritual cleansing from Jesus. Many had experienced ritual purification and they were still dead in their trespasses and sins. Right? Their hearts were still hard against their creator, covenant Lord. But think about the parable of the ten lepers. Or not the parable, I'm sorry. Jesus' healing of the ten lepers. Think about that, right? Jesus healed ten lepers. And they went off to finish their purification process at the temple to obey the ritual purification laws we just read about in chapters 13 and 14 last week. One returned to Jesus. One. One out of ten. Ten were cured. Ten were made ritually clean. One was made righteous. Jesus' works during his earthly ministry, as impressive as they were, were merely a foretaste of what he accomplished on the cross. See, through Jesus' death and resurrection, he was not merely making the unclean clean. He was making the guilty, unregenerate sinner right with God. Jesus, hanging on a Roman cross, took upon himself the uncleanness of all of his people. He removed it once and for all, fulfilling the purity laws and accomplishing that which they intended to do, but were ultimately powerless to fully accomplish. If Jesus' ritual cleanness was contagious during his earthly ministry, that is, if, if those he touched became unclean, or became, I'm sorry, those who he touched were unclean that became clean. And friends, how much more so this side of the cross? How much more is the spiritual cleanness contagious as he ministers to his people from his throne in heaven? See, we believe this. Do we see that the greater work of his disciples is the proclamation of the gospel of God that makes unclean people clean? Through the gospel of grace, the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit is raising the dead all around us. People brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. People who were once dead in their trespasses are now alive in Christ. People who were on the road to spend eternity in hell separated from their Creator, now spending eternity with God. Just as Jesus ministered among the unclean, making them clean, he continues to engage the unregenerate, guilty sinner with the gospel of God. And friends, this, this right here, this is our calling. You and I have the privilege 
of participating in the mission of God and the ministry of Christ through the proclamation of His Word. So let me, let me conclude. Just end by saying this. Listen, there, there's no such thing as cooties, boys and girls. Just in case you missed it at the beginning. There's no such category as ritual impurity at this point in redemptive history. It doesn't exist. But our neighborhoods, our town, our state, our country, the nations of this world, they're filled with unclean people. They're filled with people with unregenerate hearts. Christian, we have a calling to perform even greater works than Jesus during his earthly ministry. And that calling is to engage the unrighteous with the gospel of righteousness. The good news that the cleanness that Jesus accomplished on the cross is contagious. That means something. It it means we have to be willing to boldly tell people that they need to trust in Christ. Let me just say something. I I know we're, we're we're in the right smack dab in the middle of Boycott Central. Get it, right? Target, Disney. Hopefully not Chick-fil-A. We'll see. Some of you have thrown that away already. I, I listen, and I, I understand that. I'm, I'm very pro not giving your money to people who hate you. I understand that. But, but listen, dare we think we're giving them the gospel in that? We're not. So, so you, you walk in the target. I won't judge you. I'll, I'll watch you walk in the target. You walk in the target and you share the gospel with unclean people. Listen, withholding your money from corporations may ultimately change their behavior. But if you withhold the gospel from people, it will never change their hearts. Ever. And the reason I say that is because we, we tend to identify these two. We tend to think that by boycotting, what we're doing is proclaiming the gospel. We're not. If that boycott, whatever that is, withholding your money, making wise decisions, whatever that is, it leads you to an opportunity to proclaim the gospel, praise be to God. But if you think your work of just not giving money to corporations is changing hearts, the only thing, friends, that changes hearts is the gospel. So, so like, I'm, I'm proud of you, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's great stuff, but let me ask you, you share the gospel with anybody lately? You, you told anybody about Christ lately? When's the last time? You had a gospel conversation and proclaimed Jesus Christ to anybody. That's the only weapon we have for true and lasting change on this earth. Only thing. It's not legislation. It's not getting your guy in the White House. None of it. True and lasting change only takes place when the gospel is proclaimed by an obedient people and the Holy Spirit changes the hearts of those people. Only thing. So dare us not equate the two. Friends, we need to be about sharing the gospel There are unclean people all around us, not right with their creator. We need to implore people to trust in Christ, to have their hearts cleansed of the power of guilt and sin. And so, brothers and sisters, let us not shrink back out of fear, even fear of losing our purity. Let us not shrink back because we're concerned about becoming becoming unclean or contaminated. Friends, We're New Testament believers. That means that our righteousness is secure in Christ. Instead, let our holiness be marked, therefore, by a love for Christ 
and not the external trappings of ritualism, but the desire to proclaim His goodness and live as if we believe it. May God grant us grace to be in the world and not of it. Would you stand as we close this morning? Gracious Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we have received a cleanness, a purity, a righteousness that can in no way be tainted. Thank you for sending your son in the fullness of time. Thank you that his cleanness was indeed contagious. That he accomplished a deep and permanent cleansing for his people on the cross. I pray we would be faithful and obedient in entering into the lives of unclean people with that message of grace. Please help us to be faithful and engaging with people who we may deem unclean with the only message of hope that exists in this world. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So thank you for your love for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. As we come to our time of invitation today, I pray that you would know, first and foremost, if you're a Christian, listen, you're you're called to do greater works, but just to think, think about our attitude towards evangelism and what that text says, right? Think about, look, look, it's June, right? We, We know what June is in our in our country and in our world right now. It's a nightmare of unrighteousness and uncleanness. But our posture has to be those who hold with them the keys to the kingdom. And, and how dare we hate someone so much that we don't share with them the only hope for their eternal life. So in your vitriol for what this world has become, I, listen, I, I share with you it's unclean and it's ungodly and it's heartbreaking. But let it be heartbreaking that drives you to understand your role and purpose, which is not just to sit and scowl at everything around you, but to engage an unclean people with the gospel. And many of you I know are, are doing that. And you know what you would face and what you will face. The reality is many of us don't do it because we're terrified. We're terrified that we'd be challenged because we don't know our Bibles nearly as well as we proclaim. We're terrified that we may lose relationships. We're terrified of what people might say and think about us. But friends, in that, would you understand that these are the greater works that we've been called to? Greater works of proclamation of the gospel. You would never know Christ if somebody had not shared Christ with you. You would never know him. You didn't didn't just happen upon this and, and think, oh, you know what? This Christianity thing sounds pretty okay. Without an in-depth knowing of the scripture and what you're getting into, without someone handing you the word of God, giving you the tool and means, you would not know Christ. So let our hearts be filled with compassion and a desire to make Christ known, chiefly. Maybe you're here this morning and you, you feel as if you are ritually clean. You know what, I... I'm a pretty good person. I don't, I don't buy any of that stuff. And, you know, like I'm pretty nice to my neighbors and do a lot of good things. Friends, a lot of good things will lead you straight to hell. 
The reality is, have you come into contact with King Jesus? Because it's the only way that your heart will be made clean. The only way that you are made clean is by recognizing that you yourself and your own works is nothing but filthy rags. But Jesus Christ, this one who is the very God of God, came. He lived a perfectly obedient life and sacrificed his life on the cross to give you the gift of his righteousness so that even though you are morally wretched before God, because of his gift and salvation, you can be seen as morally clean. That's a gift that is to be received by people who repent of their sins, acknowledging they've lived their life as if they were God, and turn from those sins to proclaim that Jesus is their Lord and then trust in his finished work on the cross for their salvation. Have you been made clean? If you've come into contact with King Jesus, you have. If you've experienced his grace and mercy through repentance and faith, you have. But if you haven't here this morning, we, we have men down front who'd love to share the gospel with you. Pastor Justin will be down front and many of our deacons as well. We'd love the opportunity to share Christ even more. But let us be challenged and strengthened this morning through the word of God.